Welcome to Apologetics with Brian O'Connell, where in each episode, I answer difficult questions that confront Christianity. In our last episode, we saw that the thing that makes the Christian Bible different from all other religious books is that it contains predictive prophecy. Not only that, but we saw that it is mathematically impossible for Jesus to have fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies unless God inspired the scripture. However, as I ended the episode, I asked the question, are these so-called prophecies real? Or has the Bible been altered by Christians to make it seem like these prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus? Is the Bible just a book of fairy tales as the skeptics claim? The dilemma here is that if Christians altered the Bible to make it say what they want it to say, then these aren't real prophecies. And if these aren't real prophecies, then the Christian Bible is no different than any other religious book. And if the Christian Bible is the same as any other religious book, then how can we as Christians claim that our faith is the one true faith? Ultimately, if the Bible has been changed and is made up, then it is no different than a book of fairy tales. It's these kinds of arguments and objections to the Bible that I want us to look at in this episode. As I mentioned in our last episode, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and others make these kinds of arguments about the Bible. They say that it's been altered over hundreds of years to make the Bible say what Christians want it to say, or that the Bible was written by a man and is filled with fairy tales and therefore can't be trusted. So, can the scripture be trusted? Is there any way for us to know if the Bible has been altered over hundreds or even over thousands of years? I want us to answer these questions by following this train of thought to its logical conclusion. What do I mean by that? If you're someone who is claiming that the Bible has been altered over hundreds of years or even over thousands of years, then I want you to ask yourself, What should we expect to see in the manuscripts as well as in archaeology? The obvious answer to this is that we should expect to see changes in the manuscripts as well as discrepancies in archaeology. What this argument is saying is that over time, when these letters were sent from one location to another, they were changed in order to make the letters align with the beliefs of the Christians in that particular region, or to match with the Christian beliefs during that particular era. In other words, what this argument is saying is that when these letters were sent from Rome to Malta, Athens, or other places like Egypt and Istanbul, or other parts of the world, these manuscripts, when they were copied from one language to another, they were also changed and updated to say new things. They were updated to reflect a different view of Jesus than originally existed with the early church. According to these kinds of arguments, it is through this kind of textual corruption that changed the view of how the church looks at Jesus. According to this view, Jesus went from being a moral teacher and only a man to being deified by his followers and now viewed as being the God of the universe. 
So, is there any validity to these arguments? Do we see evidence of editing? In order for us to answer these questions, we need to look at the biblical manuscripts. But before we look at the manuscript evidence for the Bible, let's first look at some of the manuscript evidence for other ancient works. For example, I'm going to assume that each of you have heard of Plato and Caesar, as well as Homer and his famous poem The Iliad, which described the Trojan War and his sequel, The Odyssey. Although we continue to find ancient manuscripts, the manuscript evidence for these men is still lacking compared to the manuscript evidence that we have to support the Bible. For example, in their completely updated book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Authors Josh and Sean McDowell show that there are 238 manuscripts from which we get our understanding of who Plato was, and 251 manuscripts that give us our understanding of who Caesar was. Josh and Sean McDowell go on to point out that of the manuscripts that were found relating to Caesar, only 9 or 10 are in good condition. So now we're left with the question of whether or not this is actually a lot of manuscripts. At this point, I haven't discussed any other manuscripts, so we don't have anything else to compare these with. In other words, we don't know if a couple hundred manuscripts is a lot or not. Before I turn to the biblical manuscripts and do a comparison of those, I want to share one more ancient example. The example I want to bring up is of the Iliad, the famous poem of Homer. The reason I'm bringing up Homer's Iliad is that this ancient work is the only ancient work that even comes close to the amount of manuscript evidence that the Bible has. According to recent research, there are 1,900 manuscripts for Homer's Iliad, and many of these manuscripts are only fragments. Something else that's important to note is that we do not have any original manuscript of any of these ancient writings. That includes the Bible. So then this brings up the question of how close these manuscript copies are to the originals. In other words, when were these copies made? Josh and Sean McDowell reveal that there is a large gap for each of these from when the original was written to the copies that we currently have. For example, the gap for the writings on Plato is a couple hundred years. The writings on Caesar are over 900 years, and the gap between when Homer wrote the Iliad and the earliest manuscript copies that we have is about 415 years. So now let's compare the quantity of these manuscripts to the quantity of manuscripts that we have for the Bible. In the Greek alone, there are more than 5,000 manuscripts. Now this is impressive by itself but there are over 10,000 Latin Vulgate manuscripts and at least 8,000 other early manuscripts, which include Arminian, Coptic, Gothic, Ethiopian, and others. When all of these manuscripts are added up, there are over 23,000 manuscripts for the New Testament alone. What's even more amazing is that the books of the New Testament were written between 40 A.D., to around 80 to 85 AD, and the earliest manuscript copies that we have were copied within the lifetime of those who lived during the time that these events took place. For example, 
Josh and Sean McDowell share that the earliest verified New Testament Greek manuscript is the John Ryland's Papyrus of John. They point out that the New Testament textual critic Barterman dates this papyrus to around 125 to 130 AD. In their book, An Introduction to the New Testament, New Testament scholars D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo date the Gospel of John to around 80 to 85 AD. If John wrote his Gospel around 80 to 85 AD, as scholars Carson and Moo suggest, and if the earliest manuscript copy that we have of John's Gospel is dated to around 125 to 130 AD, then this means that there is only a 45 to a 50 year gap between when John's gospel was written to when this copy was made. And this is clearly within the lifetime of those who witnessed these events. The significance with this is that if these manuscripts were altered and didn't reflect the events accurately, witnesses would clearly object and make these errors known which we never see in the manuscript, archaeological, or extra-biblical evidence. As I mentioned earlier, there are thousands of manuscript copies for the New Testament. Now, although this is incredible, it actually brings up a new dilemma, which is that with these thousands of manuscripts comes the presence of what's known as scribal errors, which brings up the issue of biblical inerrancy. But before we address inerrancy, let me talk about these errors. In his book, Misquoting Jesus, textual critic Barterman points out that textual critics argue that there are between 200,000 to 400,000 variants in the New Testament manuscripts. He goes on to say that there are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. You may be asking yourself, how is this even possible? How can there be more errors than there are words in the New Testament? What he is saying is that with the enormous amount of manuscripts for the Christian New Testament, there are a ton of mistakes. However, let me pause here. Bart Ehrman is making it seem like there are so many errors in the manuscripts and that therefore the Bible can't be trusted. However, This is not actually what Bart Ehrman believes. For example, at the end of his book, Misquoting Jesus, in a section titled Q&A with Bart Ehrman, Ehrman is asked the following question. Bruce Metzger, your mentor in textual criticism, to whom this book is dedicated, has said that there is nothing in these variants of scripture that challenges any essential Christian belief. For example, the bodily resurrection of Jesus or the Trinity. Why do you believe these core tenets of Christian orthodoxy to be in jeopardy based on the scribal errors you discovered in the biblical manuscripts? The following is Ehrman's response to this question. Bruce Metzger is one of the greatest scholars of modern times. And I dedicated this book to him because he was both my inspiration for going into textual criticism and the person who trained me in the field. I have nothing but respect and admiration for him. And even though we may disagree on important religious questions, 
He is a firmly committed Christian and I am not. We are in complete agreement on a number of very important historical and textual questions. Now pay attention to what Ehrman says next. He says that if he and Bruce Metzger were put into a room and asked to hammer out a consensus statement on what we think the original text of the New Testament probably looked like, there would be very few points of disagreement, maybe one or two dozen places out of many thousands. I think that's incredible. However, what I find even more fascinating, and the reason why I said earlier that Bart Ehrman doesn't actually believe that you can't trust the Bible, is what he says next. For example, pay attention to what Ehrman says next. He says, The position I argue for in misquoting Jesus does not actually stand at odds with Professor Metzger's position that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. In other words, what Bart Ehrman just said is that even though he makes the claim that there are a lot of errors in the manuscripts, rather, that there are hundreds of thousands of errors in the manuscripts, that there are absolutely zero essential Christian beliefs that are affected by these errors. That's incredible. So then, you may be asking, what are these errors that Ehrman and others are talking about? The errors that these textual critics are talking about include things like spelling, meaningless word order changes, missing the definite article on proper nouns, as well as other kinds of similar errors. Let me explain each of these quickly before we move on. Regarding the area spelling, this may seem self-explanatory, but let me give you some examples of what this looks like. Something you need to understand is to a large extent, a lot of these mistakes are easily understood for someone who has taken beginning or introductory biblical Greek. For example, In their book, Heresy of Orthodoxy, Andreas Kossenberger and Michael Kruger point out that if certain words end in a new, which is one of the letters in the Greek alphabet, that new would often be dropped by the scribe if the following word started with a vowel, and this is known as the movable new. Kossenberger and Kruger go on to explain that scribes were not always consistent with this practice and actually often differed from one another and would even change patterns within the same manuscript. They also point out that scribes used a variety of different abbreviations and not all were identical. One example of these abbreviations is that sometimes if the last word in a line ended with the new, Sometimes scribes would abbreviate it by dropping the new and putting a horizontal line in its place. Lastly, in this area of scribal spelling errors, Kossenberger and Kruger point out that another reason for spelling errors is that scribes would often interchange I and IE or EI in the spelling of words, which was often a form of phonetical spelling rather than a form of scribal error. Regarding meaningless word order changes, This again is something that is easily understood for someone who has taken beginning or introductory biblical Greek, or has studied another language where word order in a sentence is not what determines the function of the nouns. For example, Kossenberger and Kruger again explain 
that one of the most common scribal changes involves word order, known as transposition. Unlike English, Greek nouns are inflected and thus their function in the sentence is not determined by the word order, but by their case. Therefore, the vast majority of word order changes in Greek do not affect their meaning at all. An example that they give is often found in the Pauline epistles, where the scribes will write Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus. Yet, even though there is absolutely zero change in the meaning of the text, these word order changes or differences in abbreviations count as variants or scribal errors. So what about the definite article missing on proper nouns? How important is that? Kossenberger and Kruger once again explain the difference between English and Greek. For example, they write that unlike English, Greek can include the article in front of proper nouns. Examples of this would be the Jesus, the John, or the Andrew. However, there is no consistency in this practice among early Christian scribes, and the presence or absence of the article before the proper nouns rarely affects the meaning. For example, a number of manuscripts include the article 2 in front of the name Simon in Mark chapter 1 verse 16, whereas most other manuscripts actually leave it out. Either way, the English translation is the same. It's translated as Simon with or without the article. But just as with the other areas that I just discussed, each time a scribe includes or omits an article in front of the proper noun, it counts as a textual variant. So now we need to address the problem of how can there be errors in God's written communication to us. And this brings us back to biblical inerrancy. If you're unfamiliar with this term, biblical inerrancy refers to the belief that the Bible is without error. I will say that I believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that it is without error. So this brings up an issue. How can I say that the Bible is without error, but at the same time say that there are these scribal errors? Let me explain by sharing an article from the website Got Questions. The article's title is, Does the Inerrancy of the Bible Only Apply to the Original Manuscripts? In response to this question, the article says that only the original autographs, which means the original manuscripts written by the apostles, prophets, and others, are under the divine promise of inspiration and inerrancy. The books of the Bible, as they were originally written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, as well as 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, were 100% inerrant, accurate, authoritative, and true. There is no biblical promise that the copies of the original manuscripts would be equally inerrant or free from errors. As the Bible has been copied thousands of times over thousands of years, some copious errors have likely occurred. So, if these copyists made scribal errors, should we conclude that we cannot trust the Bible? No, absolutely not. 
Even non-Christian critics confess that the New Testament is trustworthy and that we can know with certainty what the original texts said. For example, not only does Bart Ehrman accept the thousands of ancient Greek, Latin Vulgate, Syriac, Coptic, and other ancient versions of the New Testament, but he writes that in addition to these New Testament manuscripts, we have the writings of the church fathers, such as Clement of Alexandria, Origen and Athanasius among the Greeks, and Tertullian, Jerome, and Augustine among the Latins, all of them quoting texts of the New Testament in places, making it possible to reconstruct what their manuscripts, now lost for the most part, must have looked like. If you didn't catch that, what Ehrman is saying is that due to the abundance of church father writings and the fact that the church fathers quoted large portions of the New Testament in their writings, we can reconstruct the New Testament based on the abundance of their writings. This is incredible. So let me bring us back to the problem of errors. Are there errors in the manuscripts? Yes, as we've just seen. However, it has also been shown that the several hundred thousand variants that critics point to refer to things such as a missing letter or other insignificant marks or even word order changes. But none of these change the meaning of the text. We also saw that with the abundance of early church father writings, we can with confidence put together what the New Testament says, even if we didn't have any of the New Testament manuscripts. And lastly, we saw that there is more manuscript evidence for the Bible, more specifically the New Testament alone, than there is for any other ancient work. So this brings up a new question. Is the Bible just a book of fairy tales that has a lot of manuscript evidence? Is the Bible just like Homer's Iliad, but with more manuscript evidence? Is there any proof outside of the Bible that verifies its reliability? These are the questions that I will be answering over the next couple of episodes. That's all the time that we have for today. Come back next time as we look at archaeology to see if it supports the claims of the Bible. Is the Bible just a book of fairy tales? Or is there evidence outside of the Bible that proves its reliability? Come back next time to find out. God bless.